Greetings all and welcome back to the Untold History podcast. In this episode 2 proper, we pick up the story following our Seymour diversion last time, as well as the start of a brand new Tudor reign. At the end of episode 1, we left King Henry's deathbed and looked forward eagerly to the new reign of his son, the nine-year-old Prince Edward, as of the early hours of the 28th of January, 1547, now King Edward VI. Those close to Henry knew of the monarch's passing, but Edward lodged away from court, for the time being had no idea that his father was dead and he was now king, and it fell to somebody to break the news to him. Enter Edward Seymour, brother to the late Queen Jane and the new king's uncle. Seymour was 47 and by no means a young man by the standards of the time. He was a man of great military experience, having fought campaigns for King Henry in France and in Scotland, and he was now about to become the most powerful man in the realm, far more so than the boy king he now rode out to collect and bring back to the capital in preparation for his coronation. Edward's title at this time was Earl of Hertford. His sister's success in providing the late king with a son and heir after such an agonising wait had bestowed great power upon her family, even if it had cost Jane her life. He had two younger brothers, Thomas and Henry, as well as a sister, Elizabeth, who would later marry Gregory, the son of the executed chief minister to King Henry, Thomas Cromwell. While Henry lived a successful but rather quiet life compared to those of his male siblings, Thomas was well known as something of a rogue, and would later achieve notoriety in the coming reign of Edward. We'll discuss him a lot more later, but for the time being, some of the key facts as they stood at the accession of his nephew. He is 38 or 39 years old, has never married, holds senior military positions, including Master General of the Ordnance, and finally, will soon be freshly known as Baron Seymour of Sudley. But back to Edward Seymour, or Hartford, as I will call him, until he gains an even greater title in the coming days and weeks. Hartford, along with fellow member of the late King's inner circle, Anthony Brown, master of the horse, and 300-odd mounted men, set off to take possession of the boy King, who was currently located in Hartford Castle, some 13 miles from the Palace of Whitehall where Henry had breathed his last. On horseback, we can estimate this as something like two to three hours' journey, or perhaps a little longer, depending on their determination to get there fast. And indeed, we may assume that Seymour was very keen to take Edward VI into his protection and safety as soon as possible. For while Henry's death remained a secret to all but his closest advisers, one could not be too careful where the smooth succession was concerned. They would have ridden quickly. On arrival at Edward's residence, the boy was told initially, as his own diary notes, that the reason for the fuss was that he was to be made formally Prince of Wales. He already held this title, but had not been invested in an actual ceremony, and so he believed that plans were to be advanced which required his presence. And it was in fact true that plans had been made for him to be brought to the capital for this reason shortly before his father's death. His uncle then brought him to Enfield, north of London, where the 13-year-old Princess Elizabeth currently resided. Elizabeth was, of course, Anne Boleyn's daughter, and as things stood, second in line to the throne after Mary, the elder daughter from Henry's first marriage, who 
who was now 30 years old. Both women had been reinstated into the succession during the queenship of Catherine Parr, though their father had no expectation or desire that either of them would ever rule England. Henry had surely died hopeful that his only surviving son would live long and father male children of his own that would continue the Tudor line long into the future. Providing for them in his will, he had wished for his daughters to live in comfort as people of great status, but undoubtedly nothing more than that. We can only imagine what he would have made of the reigns of his two daughters that would see out the 16th century. At Enfield, the news was finally broken to the royal children that their father was dead, and the pair were said to have clung together and wept greatly at the news. Absent father or not, the pair were now both orphans shy of adulthood. Hartford then sent a message to the council, letting them know that he and Edward would ride back to London the next morning, and then endured a restless night, occupied by his thoughts. In the early hours of the next morning, he received a message from Paget, who informed him that the key to the chest that contained Henry VIII's will was missing, and Seymour realised that he had taken it with him in his haste to reach King Edward. He had the key sent back to Paget and the council, but recommended that the contents of the will be kept on the down-low, and to reveal only what was necessary, so as to limit later controversy. Paget and Seymour seem to have had a very close relationship. As Henry VIII had lain dying, the pair had quietly discussed what would come next. Paget, a member of the Privy Council for the last four years, who then continued into Edward's council, strongly supported Seymour, the Earl of Hertford. Later letters from Paget to Seymour, starting from a year after Edward's accession, after their relationship had become greatly strained by political disagreement, reveals the content of their discussion at the time of the King's death, it seems Paget agreed to offer Seymour his full support in his bid to become Lord Protector, in return for Seymour promising to take Paget's opinion into account above all others, effectively making him his number two on the council. As for the letters Paget sent to Seymour later in the reign, well at first they contained somewhat cryptic advice, stating more metaphorically than literally that Paget believed Seymour was taking the wrong path in not taking the opinions of others into proper account. A New Year's gift of 1549 was accompanied by a message providing a sort of daily schedule for Seymour that, if followed correctly, would encourage him to make the correct decisions. This included a plea for him to deliberate maturely in all things, and to make assured and staid wise men ministers under you. It seems Paget believed Seymour was taking the wrong path in his governance of the realm, and acting too much on his own instinct and beliefs without consulting the rest of the council. The letters would later become increasingly concerned in tone and more forthright in their criticism. We will discuss them in greater detail in later episodes, but one is particularly interesting and relevant to our current point in the timeline, in that it gives us a window into what the two men spoke of just before Henry's death. William Paget to Edward Seymour, July 1549. Remember what you promised me in the gallery at Westminster before the breath was out of the body of the king that dead is. Remember what you promised immediately after, devising with me concerning the place which you now occupy, 
and that was to follow mine advice in all your proceedings more than any other man's. So there we have it. The position he now occupied was Lord Protector of the Realm, king in all but name until the actual king came of age. Paget had offered his support for Seymour taking this role, which went against the will of King Henry, so long as Seymour agreed to take Paget's opinions into account above all others. At the transition of power from Henry's regime to that of Edward, Seymour needed such support to claim the position of Lord Protector. It was never assured or assumed. Anthony Brown, who had accompanied Edward Seymour to collect the new king, told Seymour that a protectorship was both the surest kind of government and most fit for that commonwealth. This, despite the fact that Brown was a religious conservative and Seymour a reformer, suggests many of the council largely believed Edward the best man for the job as things stood. He was closest in relation to the king and had great experience in military matters, if not day-to-day governance. The way the wind was blowing seemed assured when the council wrote to him two days after Henry's death, asking if the traditional royal pardon at the start of the new reign should be observed. In doing so, they acknowledged Seymour's supremacy over the rest. Seymour was not presumptuous and replied that he was unsure if he had such authority, but he did not discount the prospect that he did, also saying that if he indeed did have such power, then it should be done. This was to be the first example of Edward Seymour acting in the manner of a king. Back at Whitehall, there was also the not-so-small matter of Henry's funeral to take place. We can, if we so desire, imagine the scene as the huge man's enormous, ulcerated body was sliced and made ready by apothecaries, surgeons and chandlers, who removed the late king's internal organs and stuffed his body with herbs and spices in preparation for burial. It was said by those performing the duty that there was hardly a pint of pure blood in his whole body. The body, as it was, was wrapped in wax cloth, then encased in lead adding substantially to the already great weight, before being placed in a wooden coffin in the privy chamber, ready for procession and burial. The king's death was kept a secret for three days, and the traditional ceremony of trumpets being blown as meals were brought to the royal dinner table continued to be observed to keep up appearances that all was normal. Those that requested an audience with the king were told that he was indisposed, not strictly a lie, This was done so as to delay wider knowledge of Henry's passing until Prince Edward was safe in the council's possession and succession assured. In an age of intrigue, it was a wise move. The king's daughter, Princess Mary herself, was told of her father's passing after her two siblings, who did not harbour Mary's Catholic sympathies. It was the first sign that she was distrusted by the new power base at court, and it would not be the last time they came into conflict during Edward's reign. Henry's death was finally revealed to Parliament on the 31st of January by an emotional Thomas Risley, his Lord Chancellor, whose name I will pronounce as Risley, though you are free to disagree. Ryothersley, anyone? Never mind. We should not underestimate the feeling involved with the passing of a monarch at the time, The king was seen as someone whose power came directly from God, and besides that, with life expectancy at the time meaning people were statistically unlikely to see their 40th birthday, many people would not remember life under another king. Henry having reigned just shy of 38 years, to many in England, this king was all they knew. 
Risley, by the terms of Henry's will, would become another member of Edward VI's Regency Council. He was one of their number that would strongly oppose the elevation of the Earl of Hertford, Seymour, to the role of Lord Protector. His religious position was somewhat confusing, as he opposed the authority of the Pope over the English Church, and had supported the dissolution of the monasteries, yet remained a conservative Catholic. Such were the complexities of religious opinion at the time. There is no clear line that divides Catholic and Reformer, easy as that would make my job. Risley was to become the Earl of Southampton, a new title bestowed upon him that Seymour correctly believed would buy his support. Yet this newfound prestige would not save his position in the early months of Hartford's ascendancy. Risley was to lose his seat on the council just two months later on corruption charges, involving him selling off some of his offices for financial gain. Edward Seymour, who would soon become Duke of Somerset, was at the start of Edward VI's reign untouchable, as Risley learnt to his cost. Many titles and lands would be gifted at the commencement of this new reign, the council sharing the spoils of their increased power via the unfulfilled gifts clause in Henry's will. This meant that lands and titles supposedly promised in Henry's time should be fulfilled, and the council certainly filled their boots. It read, We will that all such grants and gifts as we have made, given, and promised to any, which be not yet perfected, shall be perfected in every point towards all manner of men for discharge of our conscience, charging our executors and all the rest of our counsellors to see the same done, performed, finished and accomplished in every point. There is a lasting and not necessarily unfounded belief that the late king's will was tampered with before Prince Edward acceded to the throne, and the unfulfilled gifts clause is the main cause of this suspicion. So let's explore the truth of this as far as we can with the sources available. We know that the will was officially amended for the last time in December 1546, when Secretary William Paget helped with the drafting. Until then, the document had been unchanged since Henry last amended it on his departure for his final military campaign in France in 1544. A glaring change this time was the omission of Stephen Gardiner, Bishop of Winchester, from the post-Hemrican plans, as well as the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard. Both men were religious conservatives, whose beliefs went against the way the wind was blowing at court, where reformers now held the majority of power. In another alteration, Queen Catherine Parr's position as regent to Edward was revoked in favour of the Regency Council, though Catherine did not know of this until after the King's death, and was not best pleased when she did find out. Henry's plan was seemingly clear. He did not wish for anybody to take precedence, and intended for the council to act as equals, seeking unanimity in their decisions until Edward was old enough to assert his authority. No one man, or indeed woman, should have kingly power. If Henry could not have it beyond the grave, they certainly could not in life. Perhaps the dry stamp was implemented. This is as it sounds. Picture a celebrity who has to sign so many autographs that they have a stamp made of their signature and have an assistant use it to answer fan mail to save time and energy. Henry had one too that was used to sign off on official documents without the king having to physically sit and sign them. The royal stamp was equivalent to Henry's own handwritten signature 
Indeed, he had not physically signed any documents since 1545. The dry stamp made an imprint of the royal signature, which was traced in later in ink. Each time it was used, this has to be recorded, and then the list of uses signed off each month by Henry to avoid fraud. Importantly, however, the king did not need to be present for the dry stamp to be used. In the monthly log, it was recorded that the stamp was used for the king's will on the 30th of December 1546, one month before Henry's death. Nothing unusual in that, except that this entry appeared after other uses of the stamp dating later, up to the 27th of January, the day before his death. This could suggest that the entry was added as a last-minute addition, following the fraudulent addition of sections beneficial to members of the council like Seymour and his allies, and then stamped after Henry's death to add validity that all was as he had intended. But before we get caught up in the entertainment of conspiracy and point the finger, it must be said that it is just as likely that the truth is more innocent. It could well be that the will was locked away after its supposed final amendment on the 30th of December, and that the man responsible for keeping the record of its use, William Clerk, did not see the document in the immediate aftermath, and so didn't record it. He was not present for the amendment of the will, so it is highly possible. Simple human error of a flaw in the system, rather than corruption? As with many things from history, people must weigh the evidence and judge for themselves, for the truth is not forthcoming. Edward Seymour, his men, and the new king rode south from Enfield for the Tower of London, where traditionally every new monarch was lodged prior to their coronation. They reached London on the 31st of January, a Monday, entering the city to great fanfare. At the Tower, and from ships along the Thames, they were met by a celebratory gunfire. From the Tower, Edward wrote to his half-sister Mary, who by this time also knew of her father's death. The young boy was stoic, saying that, We ought not to mourn our father's death, since it is his will who works all things for good. Nothing too sentimental then, and characteristic of the Edward we know from the sources. Logical, deeply religious, and serious beyond his years, at least in writing. To him, God willed his father's death at this time, and it had passed. Edward went on to say that he would be a dearest brother to Mary, overflowing with all kindness, in fact. We shall keep an eye on these words to see how closely they are adhered to as the reign progresses, but for now, Edward meant them. Before Edward's coronation would come his father's funeral. It was to be a grandiose occasion, fitting for a man who had ruled the realm for some 38 years. The body prepared and effigy carved atop the coffin, a vigil was held in the privy chamber for five nights. Then the body was taken to the chapel at Whitehall Palace, with a huge procession in tow and placed within a hearse. The burial itself took place on the 15th of February, 1547, two weeks after his death, at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Henry was buried alongside his favourite wife, Jane Seymour, as Edward Seymour looked on, as did the king's widow, Catherine Parr. So far as we know, the Princess Mary, now first in line to the throne, attended neither her father's funeral or her brother's coronation that followed soon after. After the funeral, the new Regency Council gathered, and Edward Seymour was made Lord Protector unanimously by the 13 of 16 present, 
as the spoils of new titles and lands were handed out to those that enabled him, as per the unfulfilled gifts clause. Seymour himself was made Duke of Somerset, and will be referred to as such henceforth. John Dudley became Earl of Warwick, and Risley the Earl of Southampton. The latter's new title certainly helped in winning him over to Somerset's cause, him having been opposed to Seymour's elevation in principle. The Queen's brother, William Parr, was made Marquess of Northampton. Thomas Seymour, though not a member of the council, became Lord Admiral. Dudley we must keep an eye on, for he will later become the Duke of Somerset's chief rival and enemy. For the time being, however, the council's goals of ensuring a smooth succession were aligned. A word on Thomas Seymour. Though not a member of the 16 men chosen as executors of Henry's will, who would automatically qualify for Edward's Regency Council, he was included among the number of the 12 additional men that could be called upon as and when the council required their presence, as specified in the late King's will. Thomas had been a name put forward for the council by Paget in the latter days of Henry VIII's life, but the king is said to have exclaimed, No, no, when the younger Seymour was mentioned so perhaps evidence that he still had his wits about him. Thomas was a capable man, but reputed as a hothead, and not somebody the old king wished to entrust with his son's future to such a degree. It is unknown how Thomas felt about this snub, but the disparity in power between him and his brother Edward would spell tensions and trouble for both as the reign continued. The coronation of King Edward VI took place on the 20th of February 1547, with the procession to Westminster the day before. It unfolded with a grandeur befitting any new king, albeit with a few tweaks made to accommodate his young age. Some contemporary commentators later said that the procession that took Edward from the Tower of London to Westminster for the coronation ceremony was not the best organised. The death of the former king had come as something of a surprise, and this, combined with the fact that openly discussing the death of the monarch was a treasonable offence, meant that plays and skits to be performed along the route were perhaps not as well rehearsed as they may have been. Such was the opinion of the imperial ambassador, Francois van der Delft, who was also unimpressed by the young king's attempts at Latin and French when he tried to converse with him, though he had been assured that Edward's Latin was impeccable. Perhaps the boy was nervous. If so, it could certainly be excused for a nine-year-old, unused to meeting dignitaries, and who was just about to be crowned king in front of a huge number of people. The king rode from the tower dressed in white velvet, embroidered with silver thread, so that he would stand out amid the mass of people that made up the procession. Alongside his nephew rode Lord Protector Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, his power at its zenith. The people crowded the streets or hung out of windows to get a glimpse of their new king. Commoners decorated the outsides of their houses as best they could afford, with tapestries, cloth of gold and cloth of tissue. For many, a coronation could be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and it was the first anybody under the age of 40 could possibly remember, which accounted for a high percentage of the youthful population of the time. The plays and skits previously mentioned, haphazard as they may have been, were full of symbolism and allegory. The main problem was that the procession made such speed that it passed the performers before they could properly get going, which is perhaps a problem that might have been foreseen, 
though who am I to judge? Anyway, those recorded include a performance by four children representing grace, fortune, nature and charity. Edward also after a time came to a scaffold that had been set up with a heavenly scene including a realistic sun, stars and clouds. From the clouds a phoenix descended, followed by a lion wearing a crown. Next a lion cub emerged, followed by angels who placed the crown atop the cub's head. As for the symbolism, Edward, of course, was the newly crowned young lion, and the phoenix and lion symbols of both his parents, the phoenix being his mother Jane's emblem, and the lion his father's. Both together had produced the lion cub king, ordained by and approved of by God, and now ruling supreme. Later at Cheap Cross, the aldermen, local governors, of London, presented Edward with a thousand pounds in gold coins, an old custom which somewhat confused the boy, who asked why they were giving him the coins, before those around him relieved him of the heavy and valuable burden. More to the boy's liking was the spectacular performance of a tightrope walker, who balanced a cable tied from St Paul's Cathedral. At the end of his descent, the man kissed the king's feet, and then reascended and juggled for the boy's amusement. And amused he was. The next morning, Edward travelled to Whitehall by barge, and finally reached Westminster Abbey, where the coronation was to happen. The traditional coronation ceremony, in place since 1375, was a gruelling 12-hour affair. As a child, Edward was thankfully to be spared the full rigours, and the proceedings were to be cut to a measly seven hours in light of his small years. Inside the abbey, two cushions had been placed on the coronation chair to give him something of a boost. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer led the service in the packed abbey. That he preached was important as a signifier that the religious reformers were now at the forefront of the new reign. Cranmer would use the opportunity to preach in favour of reform, making key changes to parts of the service. For example, where attendees had previously been asked to give their assent to the monarch as their new ruler, they were now asked, Will ye serve? which meant the relationship between the king and the people had been changed. After the break from Rome, the king now held greater power than ever before, as head of his own church, the Church of England. Yay, 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 God save King Edward, the crowd answered. In short, Cranmer's sermon preached greater power to the king and less power to the bishops and the church as a whole. As a result of the upheaval of his father's reign, Edward would enjoy power as no king before him had, although he was still too young to properly enjoy it. Cranmer likened Edward to the biblical Josiah, another reformer of the church who had begun his reign as a young child, and Edward was the first king crowned with the title of Defender of the Faith. A crucial part of any coronation, of course, is the literal crowning of the new monarch, with the placing of the crown upon the king or queen's head. In Edward's case, his head was still rather too small for a standard crown, but he still had that of Saint Edward, as well as the imperial crown placed upon his head, followed by his own better-fitting custom-made version that he would wear for the rest of the ceremony. He also took the scepter, Saint Edward's staff and the orb and spurs, the heavy spurs were quickly removed so as not to weigh down the boy, while he required assistance with holding the sceptre, which was ably provided by the Earl of Shrewsbury, Francis Talbot. As a traditionalist Catholic, certain parts of the sermon must have grated with Shrewsbury, 
yet he would conform with religious matters during the reign to come. The lords then came forward to pay homage to their new king, kissing his cheek. Seymour Somerset approached first, pledging his life to Edward, and others followed, though the process was eventually expedited by a collective kneeling, where Somerset declared a general homage from all present. The party then moved to the Great Hall at Westminster, where a great feast would take place. The nobility took turns to again pay homage to their king, before drinks and dessert were served. Later, the party moved to the Palace of Whitehall, where a couple of weeks before, Henry VIII had died. Here, further feasting and entertainment took place, including a play against the Pope, and Edward must have retired to bed at the end of the night thoroughly worn out, whether or not his uncle had treated him to a small drink to mark the occasion. The next two days saw further celebration in the form of jousting and additional banquets, Seymour, the Lord Protector, manfully had a go, despite his relatively advanced age. And so, England had a new king, a young one who could conceivably rule for many years to come, and with the heart of a true religious reformer. The business of ruling had to follow this celebration, and we will explore the early decisions taken by the Regency Council in the next episode. As a teaser, further schemes are afoot from John Dudley, The new Duke of Northumberland would defer to Edward Seymour for the time being, but his ambitions would not rest with his current position. He intended to play the Seymour brothers against one another, all too aware of Thomas's hot head and jealousy of the newfound power of Edward. We'll catch up with him and Thomas Seymour soon. The latter is feeling rather amorous, and Queen Catherine is now back on the marriage market. Much to explore then going forward. Many thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please feel free to like and subscribe and do follow to ensure that you do not miss any upcoming content. The transcript is available at the usual place. For now, wattpad.com slash user slash Joel A. Levy, though a proper website is in the works. We are also on Twitter at UntoldHistPod, where you can find out first when a new episode is imminent, along with a few extra Tudor nuggets. All the best, keep well, and talk to you soon.